Good evening, everyone. Welcome tonight to Bethany. It's an honor to be here together. My name is Richard Dahlstrom. I'm the senior pastor at Bethany, the teaching pastor here at the Green Lake location. And uh, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of uh, your busy lives for this moment that we believe is critical and catalytic in our ongoing life as a community. So thank you very much for being here. This is a, this is a tough day to be here. Uh, the events of last night in Las Vegas and the news that all of us have received this morning is yet another reminder of how deeply broken our world is. And into that darkness, we are called to be nothing less than the light of Christ. So I'd like to invite us to begin this evening with a special time of prayer. I will read one scripture out of Genesis, and then I will lead us in a prayer time. And though we are not a high church church this evening uh, in this prayer time, uh, as I pray for different things, when I finish making a statement, I would simply ask you to respond by saying, Lord, hear our prayer, if you would do that. So I'll say a sentence, and then when there's a moment of silence, I'll lead you in this, but we'll say, Lord, hear our prayer. We'll do that a few times. And then I'll close with a, the prayer from my Celtic devotional book this morning, and then introduce you to our time together this evening. Let's take a moment of prayer as we turn our hearts toward the many who are suffering in our world this night. And I'm reading from Genesis in the fifth, uh, the sixth chapter, the fifth verse. And then the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great on earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and filled with violence. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, grieved in his heart. Father, we come to you tonight as broken people, mindful that though we long for peace, there's war. Though we long for reconciliation, there's division. Though we long for the renewing of all things, at every turn it seems things seem, things seem to continue to be broken. And so this evening we bring prayer to you. Not even always knowing how to pray, but lifting up those in need. For the families of the victims of the tragedy in Las Vegas, Lord, hear our prayer. For those many displaced in Puerto Rico, Sudan, Syria, Somalia, Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Honduras, Venezuela, and Seattle, Lord, hear our prayer. For the racial divide that continues and continues to divide, we ask for your healing power to break through in each of our lives together and in our life together as a church that we might be a reconciling community. Lord, hear our prayer. For your church, deceived by prosperity, drugged by complacency, torn by division, Lord, have mercy. Heal us, waken us, strengthen us, equip us, 
Call us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. Lord, hear our prayer. God, be with us on this day, to us and with us on this thy day. Grant us forgiveness. Grant us mercy. Grant us thine own forgiveness and mercy, thou merciful God of all. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I have the privilege, actually, of introducing those who will introduce our guest speaker for the evening. Uh, there was a movement afoot, initiated by the Holy Spirit in our congregation some time back, a couple of years. Uh, and in response to that movement, a desire to see us be part of the solution and not part of the problem in the racial divide that is a centuries-old scar in the history of America. Two of our lead pastors stepped forward, courageously, I might say, and said, we would like to take a lead in leading our community down this path together. And so I'm privileged to introduce to you those two pastors right now. Scott Sun, pastor of Bethany North, and Prentice Park, pastor of Bethany West Seattle. If you two would come up, and if you would join me in welcoming them, they'll be introducing our speaker for the evening. Well, good evening, everybody. We're so glad that you're here for this special occasion. Uh, as Pastor, Pastor Richard just said, I just want to give you a little bit of background of how this all began. Uh, this started two years ago where our staff, all of Bethany-wide staff, we, we gathered together uh, to talk about and to discuss what are important uh, uh, perspectives and uh, strategies and theological uh, projections at our church. Uh, and out of many hours of us kind of discussing that, race and justice uh, was a common theme uh, with all of us as a staff. And so it was our determination to make sure that this was on the forefront of our church and our discussions and our trajectory and how we wanted to do ministry. And so for those of you that were here last spring, we invited Romanita here to kind of launch this as a congregation. But even before that, our staff, we gathered together around this book by Dr. Brenda, our speaker tonight, called Roadmap to Reconciliation. Raise your hand if you've read that. It's a lot, wow, it's a lot of you guys. And so we were excited to open up that book together as a staff so we can be on the same page, using the same language, uh, for us to then minister to our local congregations and to say this is important for us and to us, and we're going to use this tool as a resource. Uh, and so, uh, again, after the Romanina conversation that we had, each location had small groups based around that that book, uh, and I can say that West Seattle, Bethany West Seattle, we had our small group right around around that book as well, and we're uh, growing in those groups of the roadmap groups, and so we're so excited to see where that book takes us as a congregation, um, and so we're so excited that you're here today. Yeah, and I just want to say, my name is Pastor Scott. Um, we're proud of Legacy This Church, 100 years. Uh, many of you know the church started 100 years ago as an outreach movement in, in Ballard, uh, to displace people. There's been a legacy of trying to cross social divides. There's, there's, there's stuff that's happened, and yet there's a hunger for more. There's a hunger for the church to awaken and be God's kingdom people in this city. Six locations working to bring the kingdom here on earth. And we have a guide here this evening. We have Dr. Brenda, 
who has written the book that many of us have studied, that's led these uh, discussion groups, led our staff. Uh, Dr. Brenda has spent the day here at Bethany. She spoke to the staff at 11.30 and encouraged and challenged us. Uh, she just spoke to group leaders and, uh, over dinner here at 5.30, and, and now she's ready to speak to you, the church. Dr. Brenda, uh, I have the joy of introducing. Uh, the Reverend Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil is a dynamic speaker, author, trailblazer, with over 30 years of experience in the ministry of reconciliation, and it is a ministry. And you are a gifted minister, but I will stay to my script here. Her mission is to inspire, equip, and empower emerging Christian leaders to be practitioners of reconciliation in their various spheres of influence around the world. She is an associate professor of reconciliation studies in the School of Theology at Seattle Pacific University, where she also directs the reconciliation studies program. She is also ordained pastor in the Evangelical Covenant Church and is on the pastoral staff of Quest Church in Seattle. Will you welcome with me Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil? Well, thank you so much. It's my honor to be with you, my joy. I was here last year when Romanita uh, Harrison Overstreet spoke and was just blessed by her work in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, for those of you who were here last year, I know that what we heard her say and what she shared was powerful, and I'm hoping that we build on it. Um, I, I'm not interested in circ circling the same mountain over and over again, so when we call this the next step, I really pray that it's an opportunity for us to take the next step. So we have prayed together already. We have um, uh, uh, had an opportunity to gather in this space and welcome and greet with each other. And I, I, I have been here all day, and it has been my gift to be with people who love God. And uh, I'll say this as I start, and then I will start. Um, we're all on a journey. We're all trying to figure it out. Um, I love the fact that that book that you, some of you raised your hands uh, it's called a roadmap because it's a journey. And I think that part of us, we really have wanted, many of us have wanted to take the journey. We just didn't know how. We didn't know where you go. We feel some urging in our hearts to move toward it, but we don't really know what we're moving toward. And I, too, am on that journey. Now, I have been at this for a very long time, and I'm pretty good at what I do. So I'm not a rookie, but even those of us who have been at it for years, just like following Jesus, can I get a witness? Um, it's not like you ever arrive. We are always in the process of following after God. So let me give you a couple things that's important for you to know about me, and then I'll jump in. One is I don't believe that when the people of God gather, it's to be a spectator sport. Now, I know that churches are developed in such a way that it's like a person on the stage and all attention is on them, which makes it almost feel like it's a show. Now, see that quietness right there? That's not going to be good. So I'm going to give you a second chance. I'm going to give you a second chance. The way these seats are organized, amen, kind of suggests that you came to see a show. And I'm here to tell you that church is not a show. We are the people of God together. All right? And I will do my best. Amen. I will give you my A game, but I demand your A game. So that means you don't sit here and look at me like this. Just don't even try it. If your neighbor is already like that, touch him and say, I think she's talking to you. 
<laughs> That's right. So if I ask you a question, you get to say yes or no. You nod your head or whatever. If you hear the truth, the Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So if you hear something and you feel like I'm the redeemed of the Lord, then open up your mouth and say, that's true. I agree. I will not get lost in what I was about to say. In fact, you will help me get better. I'm talking to the balcony. You with me up top? All right. So I'm going to be like this. This is how I'm going to be. You should have invited somebody else if you didn't want this. So you got me. Amen. <laughs> and I'm going to stay like this till my time is up. All right, so we have asked God to be with us, and I'm trusting that God will speak to us. And so as we jump in, let me tell you a story. And we're talking about repairing reconciliation, and I've already told you that I'm on a journey. I will never forget the day that I was on an airplane uh, on my way to some speaking appointment or something. I can't remember where I was going, but I will not forget that I took a book in my uh, briefcase with me called Dear White Christians. Dear White Christians, written by Jennifer Harvey, uh, who is an ethicist, uh, was a professor at Duke uh, uh, University or Duke Divinity School, and uh, she was critiquing what she was, what she uh, called prophetic evangelicals who are proponents of a faulty paradigm that she calls the reconciliation paradigm. And as she was writing in this book, and everybody said, oh, Dr. Brenda, you got to read this book. And so I'm reading, and, and, and she is talking about how if you listen to these prophetic evangelicals, they constantly talk about the fact that the 11 to 12 o'clock hour is the most segregated hour in the United States of America. God, Dr. King said it, and those of us that she calls prophetic evangelicals, that's our rally call, that it's a shame that the church on Sunday morning is so segregated, right? And, she, and, and I was like, well, yes. <laughs> and then she said, if you listen to these prophetic evangelicals, uh, that you would, you would get the impression that the only thing that needed to be fixed with the church was that it didn't look so uh, segregated on Sunday morning. If we could just look more diverse on Sunday morning, problem solved. And then she said, but there is some real gaps in that type of approach to reconciliation. She started saying that uh, the truth about reconciliation is that it never leads to social change. These bless their hearts, little uh, prophetic evangelicals. And then she said, and they are strong proponents of this faulty paradigm. And then she said, people like. And then she started calling people's names. And, yes. In the book, she started, and she started calling people's names, I know. And, and so I'm on the flight, and I'm like, huh. And then she, and then she called other people, I, ooh. And I remember the moment I thought, I know this woman is not going to put my name in this book. I just know that she is not going to name me among the faulty. And then I flipped the page. And she said, hey, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. I said, ah! <laughs> it, I, was, I was horrified. She basically said that those of us who keep preaching to people like you 
are guiding you toward the wrong vision. I love you. Thank you for feeling it with me. I couldn't even finish reading. It moved me so much because to know me is to know that I give my whole heart to this. And to hear me with all my sincerity be critiqued as leading you towards something that actually doesn't change anything, that it's more like, let's all get along. It hurt, but I actually feel like she was right. That day on that airplane, when I shut that book, because I literally couldn't keep reading it, I had a paradigm shift, a major paradigm shift. And that's exactly what she wanted to have happen. She writes in her book about paradigms. She says, paradigms are powerful. A paradigm might be considered a framework that shapes how we understand a situation at its most fundamental level. Listen to that. A paradigm might be considered a framework, a way of seeing things that shapes how we understand a situation at its most fundamental level. A paradigm contains within it operative assumptions about how we see and comprehend the basic nature of a problem. As a result, it necessarily informs the kind of solutions or responses we identify, as well as which responses we perceive to have the most urgency or even recognize as viable. Just take that in for a second. A paradigm shift. And for me, her critique caused me to question, what assumptions am I using as I begin to lead people toward this work of reconciliation? What do I think the real solution should be? Is it more diverse churches? So we can say we're a multicultural congregation. I now know that simple analysis leads to simple solutions. <laughs> and it was a wake-up call for me. But let me tell you something. Jennifer Harvey is not the first person to call the church to have a paradigm shift. Jesus, our Christ, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 21 through 22, was calling the people who call themselves followers, disciples, to have a paradigm shift. John's disciples were questioning Jesus about why his disciples did not participate in ritualistic fasting as the other disciples did. And Jesus said to them, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours 
Jesus is saying something new has had to happen here. When the disciples was like, why don't your guys do what everybody else does? Why doesn't your guys, your followers, your disciples do the same old stuff that we've been doing? And Jesus says he did not come to patch up old, prolonged, worn out systems and the ways that we have been doing things over and over again. Jesus is not necessarily saying that there's anything wrong with it, but they're not relevant. They're not working. They're not accomplishing what they were intended to accomplish. He now commands us that, that our, to look, to reinvestigate our traditions, to look at the paradigms that we're using. They had a paradigm that says, everybody does it like this. Why don't your disciples do it like this? And Jesus says, let me give you a new way of thinking about this. Don't you know that nobody pours something new, new wine, into things that are old? It will burst it. It can't contain it. New wine demands new wineskins. And so my brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. When God begins to speak to me, I can hear it on the inside almost like it won't let me go. This notion of new wine requiring new wineskins is like a mantra in my soul. I hear it all the time. And I'm not even sure I completely know what it means. But I do sense that God is saying, I'm calling you to something that's innovative. I'm calling you to something that's fresh, something that's creative, something that's energized, moved by the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying to his followers. What I am doing, what I am pouring out in your generation is going to demand new methods, new models, new paradigms. Amen. 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 The word of God is powerful and relevant. And Jesus is talking to us as much as he was talking to those disciples of old. You can't get new things by doing what you've kept, been doing before. That means that we will have to start looking for things to be different. That means, if the truth be told, that the things we've been doing will look differently than we've ever seen them or imagined them. Like when I think of the word church, people used to say to me, you're going to pastor a church. And I went, no, I'm not because I really don't want to. And God said to me, you hear that word and it immediately conjures an image in your head. And you see the church. But new wine demands new wineskins. And what you think it looks like is not necessarily going to look like that anymore. And you've got to be willing to understand and embrace something new. I believe, my brothers and sisters, that God is doing something new in the world around us right now that's going to require new wineskins. That's why I'm having this conversation with you. Because I don't think we lack sincerity. Just like when I was reading Jennifer Harvey's book, I know my heart is sincere. But I am a witness that you can be sincerely wrong. It's just the truth. <laughs> Can't you? Talk to me. Can't you? And that's why we need the body of Christ. That's why we need to have these conversations because when God is doing something new, it requires sometimes having fresh eyes, new perspectives, new voices, new conversations, reading new things. So I just am convinced 
that God is doing something new in the world around us right now. Our ways of interpreting and responding to what's happening in the world around us must change if we're going to respond effectively to the new wine that God is pouring out in this day. I believe that. These new wineskins or paradigms, this new way of thinking about church is going to challenge us at the core. Somebody already feels uncomfortable. That's good. Praise the Lord. That's right. Because when you start feeling something new, it ought to make you feel a little squirmy. It makes me feel squirmy. It does. It makes my stomach ache sometimes because one thing we don't do too well sometimes in church is new. Amen. We kind of like things that work. And so did they when they said to Jesus, this is working. Why don't your guys do it? And Jesus said, it's not because it's wrong. It's just because it's not new. And something new is happening. And that's why the structures and the paradigms we use to contain it need to be changed. The reason I think it's going to challenge us is this. I think it's going to cause us to have to risk creating new models and new paradigms. And I believe they're going to be different than anything we've ever seen before. One thing that is new, so then I told you God's been talking to me. This new wine requires new wine skin. So I've been walking around, praying, discerning. God, what's new? What are you doing new in this day? What are you doing new in my community? What are you doing new at our church? What's new in the world around us? What is the new thing that seems to be coming up? And let me say this parenthetically. I love business for this reason. Business knows that it will not survive if it doesn't keep innovating and asking something new. I wish the church would just take a business course. I do. I wish we, hey, man, don't you? Don't you wish we had a research and development department that the whole job was to ask the church, what's new? What's God doing new? What's the people asking for that we're not doing? Why don't they come? Why do they find us so irrelevant? People who are in business, they thrive on pushing and asking those kinds of hard questions. Would to God we would start to do that because we would begin to innovate. We would begin to create new wineskins. So the thing that's starting to happen that's new is a new approach to reconciliation. For many people, the concept of reconciliation has gone stale. I don't know if you have heard it, but many people don't even want to use the word reconciliation anymore. Amen. They wouldn't come. <laughs> I know you. <laughs> they don't even want to use the term. If you check out the internet and people writing about reconciliation right now, some people feel like they don't even want to use the term. And this is not necessarily just a new phenomenon. It's just growing louder and louder and louder. I can sense a wave of it growing amongst us, right? I remember that there are people when I was first starting to talk about reconciliation, and they said, you know what? I don't even believe in racial reconciliation. It's an oxymoron. Because how can you reconcile something that has never been consiled in the first place. Amen? So they were like, that, it's just not possible. Like if a husband and wife separated and they came back together, you see, they were once together and then they came back together. But when it comes to race relationships, you ask a Native American if we ever were consiled. And they would say, well, I can't remember when exactly that was. 
So they would say, we won't even talk about reconciliation, especially as it relates to race, because we've never done it well. It's never been healed. And I hear their complaint, but it has grown in the last few years. It's at a deafening pace now. And if we haven't heard it, we haven't gotten out much. Amen. Right there is an amen spot. Amen. Right there. I'm going to give you another chance. If you haven't heard it, it's because you haven't gotten out much. Because they're talking about it. This generation is saying they don't want to hear another word about reconciliation. They are tired of us. Amen. The church. They feel like we have turned reconciliation into some stale concept that sounds more like relational kumbaya. We sing together. We sway together. And as long as we look good together, that's, cool. that's reconciliation. And they're like, we're done. We're done with this whole notion of holding hands and making a friend and hearing your story. We're tired of this thing that you guys are doing that seems to be this approach to like holding hands together but never really changing anything in the society around you. Amen. Now, just like reading Jennifer Harvey's book, it hurt. I had to close the book. And what I'm saying should hurt us. Because there are people who literally just don't believe that the church is relevant. When it, amen, it's true. I know young people who love God, but they don't love us. They don't want to come to church. They feel like there are other places where it is much more engaged, and they feel like they're alive and really making a difference in the world. They feel like we come here to have Christian karaoke. <laughs> Amen. And if you're upset, go to the bathroom, take a break. <laughs> but I'm not going to change because this is important for us to hear. Young people feel like we do this for ourselves. Amen. And I get it. I hear them. And so what they feel like is that Jennifer's critique of me and my compadres who talk about reconciliation, they feel like this reconciliation paradigm is actually ineffective, that it's not working. So here's what Jennifer Harvey would say about the reconciliation paradigm. She explains it this way. The reconciliation paradigm is, the, is based on a contemporary Protestant view of race, which was deeply shaped by the civil rights movement, which targeted the central problem of segregation, where that all people could come together. Now, I don't believe that that's what Dr. King started. I believe Dr. King was going for justice and economic change for people. He was really trying to advocate for the marginalized and those, right? So, but I think the church got a hold of Dr. King and we, we, we anesthetized him, amen. We made him palatable for the church. So we never talked about the bus boycott and all that stuff. It was just like we were all overcome together. But we never talked about overcome what? And then it slowly morphed into a conversation about being the beloved community. All God's people coming together at the table of brotherhood. Amen. And then that moved to one of the primary sins of segregation was that it violated human unity and destroyed the possibility of real human community, this beloved community. And if we could just come together, that would end this 11 to 12 o'clock horrible segregated hour on Sundays. Am I making sense? You with me? Yeah? 
All right, so as a result, the focus of the reconciliation paradigm became interracial unity and togetherness with the belief that racism would be eradicated by diverse people coming together. So then there was this great new move on making multicultural churches. Did we all see that? Okay. The problem being with that, I love multicultural churches. I go to a multicultural, some of my best friends. <laughs> but here's the problem. The problem being that this lacks an understanding of the particularity required for different racial groups based on historical and social realities. You can see why I had to put the book down. I was like, oh my Lord, I think she's right. You see, the problem with that approach is this. When people talk about reconciliation, it sometimes means ignoring historical realities. So you talk about racism, they say, I didn't own slaves. Ignoring differences, i.e., we're all the same inside. I don't even notice your color. And you feel like, really? <laughs> you just don't, huh? <laughs> right? Because reconciliation almost becomes this colorblind, we're, we're all precious in God's sight. And we're, we're not different. We all bleed red. But some people are bleeding more frequently than others. Amen. Come to my table. Come to my church. Kind of like, let's all come together. But who's coming to whose church? It's not like we're going to shut down our church and go over to... You name the church. We're not going to Rainier Avenue Church and joining down there. We say, you can come join us. So it's kind of an invitation. You're welcome to come be with us, but we're going to be running this. You can be with us as long as you learn how not to pray too loud or stand too long or preach too much. You know, tone it down and then come be with us. Right? Come to our college but you can't be like that, you see? And I know this is upsetting, but if you wanted to hear from anybody, you should hear it from me because that's what reconciliation has come to be, this notion of we want to be diverse, but on whose terms? And then the next thing is, as a result of that, we start asking the wrong questions to diagnose the problem. Someone will say, black lives matter in reference to somebody getting shot in the street. Well, don't all lives matter? You feel like nobody said anything about that. I'm trying to say this boy right here who got killed in the street shouldn't have gotten killed. That 12-year-old little boy, Tamir Rice, it was two seconds before they shot him. Who wants a tw anybody to have two seconds? You can't put it down in two seconds. So don't talk to me about all lives. I'm saying that little boy should be alive today. Do you hear me? And I mean it. That baby should be alive today. There should be no kid, no kid playing with a gun in a park who, does, who has two seconds. How if he was autistic and couldn't respond? One man got shot in the street trying to keep an autistic kid from standing up. 
So don't talk to me about asking questions like, well, why didn't he just put his, his hands were up. But you see, when we start doing this reconciliation things that says we're all the same and nobody is having a different experience in the world, then we start asking those kinds of questions. And those kinds of questions are causing people to see that reconciliation is shallow. This shallow understanding of reconciliation that leads to simplistic answers to very complex problems has had a very negative impact, not just on us, but on white identity. <laughs> you see, we've all been drinking the same Kool-Aid and it's got arsenic in it. We've all, we've all been breathing the same smog and it's polluted and none of us are exempt. None of us. This is not a person of color problem. This problem of a racialized society that has stratified, stratified people into categories of who's important, who gets to live, who gets to die, who gets health care and who does not, who's worthy of having an opportunity and who's not, it's killing us. It's killing us all. And here's the impact it has, the negative impact it has on those of you who think of yourselves as white, which is a construct that started coming up to divide who we thought was really at the top and who we think is further from the top. There's a negative impact on everybody living in a racialized society. For whites, it's impossible to fully internalize a concept of whiteness as being good. I'm a college professor, and one of the things that I see all the time is when a white student wants to engage the work of reconciliation, they constantly feel a sense of guilt and shame and blame. Do I have a witness? And so there's this sense of, I know that there's a history in our country, and I know that white people have done these things, and I know that there are those, these realities going on. I know that racism exists, and I just feel like I'm just so much always a part of the problem. I don't know if I should say something, not say something. I wish I weren't white. Now, you may not feel that way, but I meet many college students who get to college and they experience more diversity than they ever did in their home church or in the places from which they come, and they realize that they don't have the skills to even understand their identity or how to see it in a positive light because it's always seen as negative to them, and they feel ashamed or angry or blamed all the time. Am I making sense? Just by a nod of heads over this section. Am I making sense? You guys hearing me? And you don't even have to agree, but I want you to hear what people are saying and why. And so I have held many students in my office and said to them, your voice is as important as anyone's. I don't need you to go, go navel-gazing and decide that you don't have anything to say. I need you to get in the game, but you've got to deal with whiteness. Because this paralysis that happens when I start feeling guilty and angry and blamed and shamed, that's part of what's happened in our racial society. It causes a sense of denial or silence or inactivity. Enter the church. It's not like we don't care. We just don't know what we're supposed to do. And we're so afraid that we'll do something wrong especially a white church, that we end up doing nothing. And we give ourselves to lament. But there is a way forward, my brothers and sisters. That's why it's necessary to take the implications of whiteness more seriously. If we're going to become transformed communities, that's the conversation, the new paradigm 
that we've got to begin talking about. So one of the new wineskins I'm starting to see emerge in the church is that reconciliation is no longer going to be solely focused on getting to know or understand people of color. This is no longer going to be about uh, uh, hearing my story or taking a person out to lunch. It's no longer going to be about washing a brother's feet who comes from a different ethnic background. Oh, no, there's a new thing happening. Amen. Somebody say it's new. Amen. The new focus is on an understanding of unpacking whiteness. Amen. So I brought you something new. Just came out last week. Amen. Because we're talking about new paradigms, right? And yes, I wrote the forward to this book because I know this boy. <laughs> he is a friend. I have been mentoring him and walking with him for over 10 years. I know Daniel Hill extremely well. He's a sincere young brother who lives in, in um, Chicago, Illinois, where I'm from, and he wrote a book called White Awake, and it has come out of a crucible of the suffering of his own life of a white man asking, how do I become a part of the solution and no longer a part of the problem? So in the foreword that I was honored to write, I wrote this. Wide awake is a call to find our deepest sense of identity in Christ, but also to realize that those who are white can't get there without breaking free of the distorted sense of identity they have internalized from a narrative of racial difference. There's work to be done. Now, I would not ask you to start with Jennifer Harvey. She's graduate level. <laughs> Don't start there. It's going to be a little hard for you. So, amen. I'll do Jennifer. You do Daniel. <laughs> All right. Jennifer's going to choke you. You're not, ready for, you're not ready for Jenny. But you could be ready. <laughs> you could be ready for Daniel. In short, we need a new paradigm that takes the problem or the, 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 the issue, the implications of whiteness more seriously that helps churches become racially transformed communities. Not just racially diverse, but literally changed, transformed. That's why we're meeting tonight. Now, I don't know why you came, but that's why I'm here. <laughs> I believe in the God of transformation. I believe that we are to be no longer conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I've come tonight to ask God to renew our minds. Amen. We're not supposed to be the tail light. We're supposed to be the headlight. And it's time for us to get in our rightful place for God. That's why we're talking about this tonight. This was not because we didn't have anything else to talk about or it was the politically correct night of the year. That's not why I came. I told you there's no entertainment going on here. This is a mobilization of the church of God. Amen. So this new shift, this new thing that's asking us to do something different is called the, rec the reparations paradigm. I know, it's a scary word. I know you love it. <laughs> it is called the reparations paradigm. Now, I know that's a scary word. Amen. So let me tell you what the reparations paradigm is. This is an approach to race and racial justice that centers on repair. Everybody say repair. Yeah. Repair, right? Fixing something rather than tolerance. 
rather than inclusion, rather than appreciation, because haven't we been enough to those things where somebody brings a taco and then somebody else brings, you know, chopsticks, somebody else brings, you know, those cultural things. Haven't we gone to them? Have we had enough? You listen to some music I like, I listen to some music you like, and we did it. So yuck, so yuck. We're tired, I can eat at home. <laughs> right? So we don't need to do those kind of appreciation where you bring Greek food and blah, 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 blah. Reparation says that, that what we really need is, is something that is, is more than appreciation, inclusion, tolerance, listening to each other, making a new friend. It's about fixing, repairing something. That's at the core of this, of this paradigm. It focuses on attending to structures for repair and redress, the same structures to which race is constructed, the same structures to which we have different relationships. Some people see uh, different things, and police, and they kind of go, yay! Other people go, oh! It's not that the structure is bad, but we've had different experiences with the structure, which means that certain people see it one way and other people see it and experience it another way. She's saying that is what we need to look more carefully at. Why are people having different experiences? What's that all about? It's a path we need to pursue to live into reconstructed interracial relationships for which, for, the re, for, for which we long. We want it, but that's the path to get it. This approach, she says, knows that work to repair will always be partial. And I love that as truth, meaning it's not like we're going to repair everything and it's all going to be like it was before we landed on the Mayflower and stuff. It's, we're not ever going to see that happen. It will never be, we will never be able to truly undo the material implications, the historical racial injustice uh, of, of what's happened in this country. And many people can talk about the, the, the pain of having been colonized and slavery, et cetera, et cetera. We won't be able to completely undo it, but it does give a glimpse of what justice as repair must look like. So let me tell you, because that's a scary word. I felt the room kind of go, oh, no, she didn't. <laughs> yes, I did. So let me tell you the night that um, my whole thinking about reparations changed. And I did not know you were going to be here tonight. This is Jason. I know him well. This story is about this, my friend. I um, met Jason at a conference that some of you attended. I was at the First Free Methodist Church over by SPU where I teach. And he asked me a question about why my book didn't deal more with reparations. And he talked in the conference, and I gave him the mic, which is fine, because I believe we need everybody's voice in this. We need to hear each other. I need young people to talk to me, because I come from a particular generation. Dr. King is like all that for me. And they were saying, Dr. B, why aren't you, why aren't you saying this, right? And so uh, we talked about it, and then... Brian Stevenson uh, was coming to Seattle, 
Jason was a part of having him come and uh, said, Dr. B, would you like to have a ticket to go hear him? And I was like, that would be great. But because we had met each other, he knew who I was and knew that I wanted to be a part of this conversation, he invited me to come. So Brian Stevenson, for those of you who don't know him, and this is a picture of him, he uh, is a civil rights attorney. Uh, this is completely parathetical. He went to college with my husband. <laughs> but he didn't really know me that well. He knew my husband because um, they went to school together at Eastern, uh, Eastern College in St. David's, Pennsylvania. So he's a Christian. He has given his entire life to advocating for the release of people who have been incarcerated and put on death row. And he is powerful. He is a, he's, he's remained single his whole life. He has married himself to the work of, racial, of, of reconciliation and justice. He has started something called the Equal Justice Initiative, and he came to Seattle to talk about it. So when he came and Jason got me a ticket, I was sitting someplace on this side of the room, and he gave a brilliant presentation. Jason, you were sitting somewhere over here on the front row, and uh, uh, Brian Stevenson said, does anybody have any questions? And I think the second hand up was my boy. And bam! And I said to the woman sitting next to me, he's going to ask a question about reparations. I don't, I don't know how it's going to start, but when it ends, it's going to have something. <laughs> Because this is a young man who's committed to justice, and he's pushing the church to have a new conversation and to engage in this new paradigm. So sure enough, I don't know how that question began, but by the time it was finished, he said, Mr. Stevenson, do you believe in reparations? And this is what Brian Stevenson said. Of course I do. He said, but anybody can write a check. He said, you know, real reparations would be something like this. In our country... African-American people were denied the right to vote. Do we all agree? Yes. Is that historically true? Yes. Balcony? Yes. And so he said to repair that, we would then fix it by registering every African-American person at 18 years old. They would instantly at 18 years old be registered to vote. He said, in fact, if you were an elderly black person, we'd come to your house and pick you up and take you to vote. He said, now that's what it would mean to repair it. And that night, I left that room. I left that sanctuary. I got in my car, and I heard the word of God speak to me. And I heard a verse that I hadn't thought of in years. I heard God say, Isaiah 58, verse 12, your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the you're going to be the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. We are supposed to be the people who repair stuff. Amen. Hallelujah. This is not new. God is moving. And God says, let me remind you of what you were supposed to be doing in the beginning. This was never supposed to be the Kumbaya Club. This was supposed to be people who repaired those things that were breached. That night was a catalytic event for me. You didn't know this. 
it really changed me. It woke me up to the reality that the way I preach about reconciliation must include repair. If you follow me, you will never hear me not talk about it. I have given my entire life to this, and I've been doing this for over 30-some years now. And I believe that God allowed me to do it for so many years so people would know that, that I, this is not some political thing I'm trying to do. Or more specifically, let me clarify, a partisan thing that I'm trying to do. Because political just means policy. And yes, I hope that policies change. Yeah. Voting is a policy. And I would hope that people get the right to vote. That's a good thing. But that doesn't have to mean that I'm picking a party for you. It just means that we're supposed to repair that which is broken. There is a big difference between what people have heard from the reconciliation paradigm and the reparations paradigm. So let me show you the difference. You ready for this? Here's what they've heard from the reconciliation paradigm. And yes, I have been preaching this. It seems to assert that those who are white and people of color have parallel differences in our racial brokenness. We should all come together. It targets segregation as the central problem of racism. If we could come together and be the church from every tribe and every nation, that would be reconciliation. It advocates a pursuit of racial togetherness across lines of racial difference as a central ethic in Christian life through which racism will be eradicated. So if we come together, racism goes away. Really? And racial diversity remains the primary way that justice-committed Christians measure the achievement of racial reconciliation. The more diversity we see, the more we feel like we're reconciled. Here's what reparations paradigm says. It requires us to take seriously repair of the actual harm done. This is no longer a clueless kind of, I just love you. Or just forgive me. For what? Okay. <laughs> what exactly are you repenting of? What would you like me to forgive you for? Right? It engages a particularistic ethic that insists we respond to our distinct relationship to injustice. It allows those who are white to redeem white identity through confession and participating in racial justice. Let me give you a quick example. If you have two kids and one kid is playing with the other kid's toy and he said, don't play with my truck, but he played with it anyway and then all of a sudden he dropped it and it breaks. And he goes, now, here comes the parent in. And so the parent has to say, you know, you broke his truck. Oh, and the little one is in a puddle because the truck got broken. So the first thing you say is that you got to say you're sorry. So the kid goes and says, he says usually something like this, sorry. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then what does the parent say? For what? Right? Sorry for what? I'm sorry I broke your truck. You told me not to touch it. I didn't know the wheels were broken on it, and I didn't mean to drop it. Okay. Then the parent says, so then, so then the parent says, you know what? This week we were going to go out and get ice cream, but instead of getting you the ice cream cone, we're going to have to use your ice cream money to fix your brother's truck. <laughs> and so then she says or he says, 
So your brother is going to get you a new truck, and he says he's sorry. What do you say? And then he says, okay, I forgive you. You see how that allows the kid who broke the truck to finally feel like he fixed it? He doesn't have to constantly go around saying, I'm sorry I broke your truck. His ice cream money now has to come to fix the truck, get him a new one, and both of those kids can move on. They don't have to keep going back to that place of, of brokenness. It's getting repaired. I'll get a new truck. I won't touch it next time. I said I'm sorry. I forgave you. That's what it means to redeem white identity. It repairs our interracial relationships through redressing structures that mediate those, those relationships and harm our racial lives. So let me get to a couple other things here. I sincerely believe that we must move beyond relational reconciliation to develop a broader vision of reconciliation. This is what a Catholic priest, his name is Father Robert Schreider, says. He emphasizes the need for a theology of reconciliation that rests on the urgent need to rebuild ravaged societies and human relationships to heal memories of horror and degradation. I love this Catholic priest. He says the healing of victims, humanity, and restoration of justice in a broken society destroyed by violence and oppression are basic characteristics of what Schreider calls the horizontal dimension of reconciliation. And then God spoke to me again. You ready? Now I know that that's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 19, right? Paul says all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ the vertical horrors, the vertical truth of the cross and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ, God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation now to us, the people of God. So the vertical truth of the cross is that when Jesus died, he reconciled us to God, but that's not the whole story because that's just the vertical truth of the cross. Do you see? We're not preaching the cross unless we say Jesus died to reconcile us to God. And in that same death, he reconciled us to each other. That's the vertical and the horizontal. Anything less than that is not the cross. We're preaching a stick. You ought to get to know Jesus. You ought to come to church. But this God there is neither male nor female, bond nor free, Jew or Gentile, but we are all reconciled through the blood of Christ. That's the message of the gospel. And my brothers and sisters, that's good news. Amen. Hallelujah, Jesus. I now know that, it's, that coming together is more than building relationships and holding hands. Reconciliation means coming together to repair that which is broken, that impedes people from reaching their full God-given potential. I was in Costa Rica this summer, and I wish, or two summers ago, and I wish I had time to talk about it, but let me say this. I was coming back from having been there because yo aprendiendo a hablar español es muy importante para mí. I'm learning to speak Spanish, and it's very important to me. One day in heaven, I'm going to be fluent. It's going to be a beautiful thing. <laughs> Amen. But esta me lengua de mi corazón. Spanish is the language of my heart, and I love Latino people, and it's the truth. I was coming back from Costa Rica after having stayed there for an entire summer learning Spanish, and I was coming back into this country, and there were two lines as we were coming back into the United States. 
one for residents and not one for non-residents. And both lines were equally as diverse as the other. There was as much diversity in the residence line as the non-residence line. And I had a thought that I'm ashamed to confess. I thought to myself, we already have enough diversity. Look at all the diversity in our line. And then I heard the Holy Spirit speak to my heart and challenge my scarcity thinking. I heard God ask me, did I believe that God wanted all the families of the earth to be blessed? Did, God, did I believe that God had enough for everybody? That there's enough resources in this earth for everybody to, to have? And did I believe that what God wants for me, God wants for all people? And I whispered under my breath, yes, Lord. And that was the day that God said to me, you can't say that you love people. Next slide and not care about the policies that impact those people. You say you love Latino people? Then you need to care about the policies that impact their lives, that affect their lives. I was asked to come to Washington, D.C. as a part of an advocacy group to talk to politicians and lawmakers about immigration reform. It's not my area of expertise. And initially, I did not want to go. But when God said to me, you can't keep telling people you love Latino people and you know that there are things happening in immigration that impact their lives and you not speak about that. So I did go to Washington, D.C. And that's why my brothers and sisters, we got to care and speak up about racial issues like immigration reform, mass incarceration, gun control, fair housing, the pipeline from public school to prison, economic exploitation, racial profiling, over-policing in certain communities that leads to the death of people. We've got to talk about wage inequity, disability rights, gender equality. These are not political issues. These are human life issues. This stuff matters to folk. This matters to folk. That's what it means to be committed to reconciliation. Amen. So we are called to be repairers of the breach, the people of God who tell the truth about our history and how things got broken. We are the people who said, forgive me, I broke the truck, I didn't mean to. Or somebody I know dropped it and I watched them drop it and I didn't say a word about it. Would you forgive me for having participated in that? Now, oh, Lord have mercy. Okay. Now I know this, that the goal is not to help white people feel less guilty. And that's been the problem with reconciliation. We wanted nobody to feel bad. We wanted nobody to have to say the truck is broken. The truth is, the goal of being a repairer of the breach is to repair broken systems together. To do it in a way that we take our context seriously and we know that we can't do this by ourselves. So what does that look like? Let me tell you, here's an example. I was blessed to learn as I got ready to be with you that your church started 100 years ago as an outreach to Native Americans. Did you all know that? By a show of hands, how many of you all knew? Not everybody. I was shocked. I went 100 years ago, this church was started as an outreach to Native Americans. So this is what it looks like to be the repairer of the breach. There's, uh, in 2001, a non-native evangelical Christian church in Eureka, California, decided to purchase 1.5 acres of land for $1,000. Everybody say $1,000. 
So this wasn't like they didn't put up a whole lot of money. They, they did a grand out of this little church. God bless their hearts. <laughs> and they gave it because the land that their church was on had been forcibly taken from the Wyatt people in the mid-1800s. And they gave it as a gift to the Wyatt people as a partial act of repair. The Wyatt people claim that this little small $1,000 gift, that began the reconciliation that paved the way for the city council to return the land an entire 40 acres to those people three years later in 2004. So you've been sweet, and I'm about two minutes over, but if you give me a couple more minutes, I'll land this plane. So in conclusion, I now know this, that our theology informs our anthropology, and our anthropology informs our sociology. Let me break that down for you. In other words, what we believe about God tells us what we believe about people. When I was coming through that line in Costa Rica, coming back into this country, God said, do you believe that I want for others the same thing that I want for you? Do you believe that when I said to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 that you will be a blessing and that through you all the families of the earth will be blessed? Do you believe that I am that God? And I said, yes. If I believe that God wants for you what God wants for me, that's my anthropology. So that means that if I believe that God wants clean drinking water for my children, God wants clean drinking water for children in Flint, Michigan. You hear me? I believe that. I believe that if I am horrified by the hurricane in Texas, I am horrified by the hurricane in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. It means that I don't have this gradation about who God cares about because my theology informs my anthropology. What I believe about God tells me what I believe about people. And what I believe about people informs the society that I believe we're supposed to work to create together. If I believe that God wants you to be well if you get sick, that means I want you to get health care if you are a youth pastor and you just work part-time. Amen. If you are a struggling student and you turn 27 because you're on the five-year plan and you are no longer on your parents' health care, I believe that even though you're on the slow track through college, you should still have health care. I believe that. Amen. <laughs> so, I believe that God wants all the people to all people to flourish and to reach their God-given potential I believe that now you might not but I believe that when I was in South Africa I was shocked when I went to Stalinbosch University because guess what I learned there I learned that apartheid did not start in politics you know where it started in the school of theology at Stalinbosch University. So we got to be careful what we believe about God because what we believe about God will tell us what we believe about people and what we believe about people will tell us what kind of society we believe we're supposed to live in. So my brothers and my sisters, I have come to this conclusion. Jennifer Harvey was right, but not all the way right because she would like us to throw away the word reconciliation and replace it with reparations. But I can't do that. Know why? 
because God gave us the word reconciliation. Ah, oh, we didn't just go snatch your word. It's in the Bible. God said, I have entrusted you with the message of reconciliation. But you know what we've got to do? We don't need to throw it away. We need to reclaim it and redefine it. We need to tell ourselves that real reconciliation is not just about actively working to do nice things. It's about repairing broken systems together. It's not about causing white people not to feel guilty. It's about fixing the systems that impact our lives and our doing is not stuff that we just go do to try to feel less guilty or like we're woke. We do things that are based on the context that we're in and we do it with other people. We do it in partnership with others. You heard me say I was in South Africa, and I'm going to close here. In South Africa, I was on stage, and I did not know I was going to say this. But all of a sudden, my heart was beating. I was supposed to go up on the stage to do something else. And, and I could hear my soul saying, next slide, the day of the single superstar is over. I couldn't even believe it came out of my mouth. And I closed my eyes thinking, because this is, I was there for a Congress on World Evangelization hosted by Billy Graham Associates and others. And they were looking for the next Billy Graham. And I said, and I said, the day of the single superstar is over. And the whole room started clapping. And I was so shocked. I went, they like it. Like I thought they're going to drag me off this stage. But you know what? I believe God is saying that this new paradigm is going to take all of us and that this new paradigm is not going to be one group of people or one church or one person. It's, we're not looking for the next Martin King. We're not looking for the next Mother Teresa. We're not looking for the next Billy Graham. We're looking for the people of God to rise up in partnership with each other who reclaim the word reconciliation and repent of what we've made of it. And we asked the world to give us another chance to show them what God wanted us to look like in the first place. We want to show them the vertical and the horizontal. So I have redefined reconciliation. It's in the book Roadmap to Reconciliation. And I believe that reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice. That transforms broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish, for water to be clean, for the pipeline not to leak oil near people's native burial grounds, for us to stand for that, to advocate for that, to march for that, to be in solidarity about that, to vote for that. That's what I believe reconciliation looks like. And if we would dare to live it, we wouldn't have to switch the word reconciliation. We would be able to stand as the people of God and say, we've been entrusted with this. And by God's help, we will cause the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven in this generation because that's the gospel. <laughs>